0: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile. dot com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. I am so excited to share an update about the good newspaper. Last week, if you heard our episode with, uh, well, we interviewed me, (laughs) uh, you heard about this brand new thing that we launched called the Good Newspaper. It's a printed newspaper full of good news. It's in a lot of ways an extension of the hopeful stories that we tell here on Sounds Good. Well, we launched on Kickstarter on Tuesday and within 52 hours, we'd reached 100% of our minimum funding goal, which is just unreal. It's ridiculous. And at the time that we're recording this, we've raised over $30,000. We've had nearly 700 people sign up to get a subscription. And here's the crazy thing. We still have more than three weeks left in our campaign. We are so surprised and blown away by everybody's excitement. And it just gets us even more energized by this idea that there is this movement of people. And you guys at the beginning of this, that are focused on the good in the world, and that care about making a difference in the problems that we see in the world. And so I just wanted to take this time to say thank you. Thank you for supporting The Good Newspaper. Thank you for inspiring and being a part of this movement of hope. If you haven't gotten The Good Newspaper yet, go subscribe right now. It's on Kickstarter. It's cheaper on Kickstarter than it will be when it's online later. So now is your chance to do it. There are some amazing limited edition rewards as well. You can get a good news pin that's a collaborative effort between me and former podcast guest, Adam J. Kurtz. We've got beautiful totes. We've got ways for you to gift subscriptions to people in need or people that you love. We're just so excited about this entire process, everything happening right now. There's so much momentum. So go check it out on Kickstarter, goodnewspaper.co.co goodnewspaper.co. That's how you get there. And one more time, thank you so much. We cannot wait to deliver good news to your front porch really, really soon. A few years ago, as we all know, Ebola ravaged through West Africa. It killed thousands of people, set communities back in huge ways, and caused a giant panic all across the world. During the height of the problem, I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand what was really happening on the ground, over the top of gory photos and videos. I think it would be safe to call this devastation porn. I wanted a real perspective on what was happening. I thought, of course it's terrible, of course this is a devastating, awful thing, but what if there's hope there? There has to be hope, right? There has to be some good coming out of this. So I turned to Instagram in search of someone actually living in West Africa to learn more about what was really happening. And I stumbled across the Instagram account of Katie Myler, a girl from New Jersey who ran a nonprofit called More Than Me in the community that was being most devastated by the Ebola outbreak. She was living in Liberia and she was sharing with full and raw honesty the reality of what was happening. She was sharing the stories of the lives lost, the crying, the devastation, the mass graves, the overflowing hospitals, but she was also sharing the stories of the singing and the hope and the resilience in spite of it all. If you fast forward to later that year, Katie was named Time's Person of the Year along with several other Ebola fighters, and nobody deserved the recognition more. The work the Ebola fighters were doing was meaningful and powerful and important and terrifying and brave and i'm blown away i got the chance to talk with katie from her home in liberia about what it was like to be in the middle of such a terrifying moment in history she shared about why she was even in liberia in the first place why she stayed and where that hope and resilience came from in her own life and in the lives of other people in liberia This conversation was an absolute treat, and I'm so excited for you to hear it. Of course, Katie is in Liberia with not the best internet ever, with all the sounds that come with Liberia, so you'll hear a little bit of that. Please forgive it. The conversation is so good. So let's just jump straight into it. Katie, I just want to jump straight into things, um, and I want to talk a little bit about Liberia. A lot of your personal story is centered around this small country in West Africa. Um, So I want to hear your very first experience with Liberia. What was it like the very first time that you uh, got off the plane in Liberia?
1: Yes. I, it was about 11 years ago, and I had never been to the continent before. I had traveled in Asia, and I had worked for a summer in Bolivia and uh, in Honduras. It was my first time coming, and I wasn't sure what to expect. And, uh, and I remember, you know, you Google Liberia, and you find out there was this, like, 14, 15-year civil war, and you watch the movie Blood Diamond, and, this, you know, there was a, you know a vice guide that I had watched, and just some things that were really intense about the country and you weren't really sure. I, you know, was a little nervous yeah. and I landed and it was, you know, beautiful. Uh, there wasn't really an airport at the time still, it was three years after the war had finished, but it was like beautiful, vibrant green and uh, and there was this big man and like he looked at me and he's like you know this big beautiful person and he was like have you been to Africa before and he's like Africa is an emotion <laughs> and you know however I don't know where he was from he's it's not a Liberian accent but uh I was like what does that mean you know what the heck does that mean so I've spent the last 11 years understanding what he meant by Africa as an emotion or Liberia being an emotion and um, I remember just the the drive from the airport to where I was staying at the guest house and just lots of, you know, like, pe- you know, people and, and these big, beautiful smiles and lots of colors for, you know, people wearing the Liberian Lapa, the traditional, you know, fabric colors. And oh, I remember seeing this woman who was carrying a baby on her back and she had like a machete in her hand and she has like bananas on her head and she was fierce and, uh, and 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 just remember the my first, some of my first memories are of the joy that i saw and wasn't expecting to see and, um, that there wasn't even a paved road from the airport into town at that point just very like just not it, you know everything was destroyed during the war so there was close to no development um but people seemed happy that the you know vibrant happy and uh and that was my you know, first impressions of Liberia.
0: I've seen Blood Diamond. I've seen that Vice documentary. And they paint a pretty scary picture of Liberia. When you showed up and you were confronted with this reality that Africa is an emotion and, uh, you know, people are joyful. Did immediately some of the fear dissipate or did it take a little bit longer?
1: Yeah, I think it was like a lot of unexpected. And we're always afraid of things we don't know. And mm. um, I've, I've always loved people and I like... I like meeting new people. I've always enjoyed new experiences. Um, So I wasn't like completely afraid. I think the thing I was most afraid of, of course, there was this war and I didn't know what to expect. And there were still empty bullet shells on the ground, or you could see a lot of the, uh, you know, the effects of war. Um, There were these men at a lot of the stores. They're still hanging out around. They're my, you know, have become my buddies after all these years. But you know, the ex combatants, um, who have one leg or one arm and they would put their, their stump in your face and beg and in a really aggressive way. Mm. Um, and so that it's overwhelming at first, I think, just taking it all in. But eventually, you know, I think at first that's how I felt is a little overwhelmed, but eventually got to, you know, you get to know people's names and their stories and you sit down and you listen and absorb long enough. Um, you know, I don't know how many months it took, but eventually, you know, in, in the beginning curve was like, I didn't, at first I was like wanted to leave um, and then I wanted, you know, and then I didn't want to leave and then I wanted to stay forever and I was so sad to leave after that for six months. Um, and it felt like, like it got to be become like a home after a while you get used to, you get comfortable taking bucket baths, you know, where, where I was living, there was no running water or you get the things start to become more normal. Um, or you start to understand them more. I started learning how to speak Liberian English. I can speak Liberian English, small, small. And I learned some of the local dialects uh, where I was staying. And, um, you make friends. And things that seem so far away or distant or scary or overwhelming um, just become, this is my neighbor, my new neighbor. Yeah. Or this is baby, 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 uh, you know, her name is T-Girl or whatever the child's <laughs> name is. There's so many along the way, you know
0: but what uh what first brought you to Liberia like what you know why did you show up in in this country
1: um the backstory briefly is like I grew up in poverty in the United States and uh my mom my single mother of three worked really hard um you know but didn't go to college and so she worked minimum wage jobs and we had some government assistance through the way and I thought my whole life, I lived in a really wealthy town. So my whole life, I thought that I was poor and, you know, lived in, and I thought the world was rich. And when I was in high school, I made a sign, send Katie to Haiti. And I went on one of these first trips, which of course, like, you know, I don't know how I feel about those trips today, but it changed my life and helped me to see the world outside of my own life.
0: Which is so important. It's one of those things where like those short-term trips, you know, now that I'm looking at it as somebody who's maybe a little bit more aware they're kind of an unsustainable, maybe unhealthy system to like to bring people through. But I had the exact same experience at a young age where I showed up. I went to Trinidad and Tobago and it totally changed the way that I saw the world and the way that I saw myself. Um, and then it, it allowed me to do other stuff in the future. Exactly. And so it's this weird trade off.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, I, and I, I think that's a whole other podcast in itself. <laughs> But I mean it helped me I learned the statistic eighty eight percent of the world lives in developing countries, and the majority of people who live in developing countries, many of them don't have access to their basic human rights of health care mm. or education or clean drinking water and I was actually one of the world's wealthiest people and uh, I wanted to do something to help and make a difference um it' was, you know it's just starting out very innocent of like i want I, I love people and um, and we're all people like you know it's not we're not American or Haitian or Liberian were human beings um, first. And I wanted to do something. So I, I ended up after that, like doing a bunch of trying as much as I could to 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 do service projects overseas. And that's how it started. And then this I got to Liberia because uh, it was I was 23 and it was my first job out of college and I got a job working for an international development um, agency. So it was my first it was an internship actually a paid internship. And they assigned me to Liberia, and I didn't know much about the country. I had to I googled it, and then that's where I saw Blood Diamond, and you know, you see, read all these, you know, and see all these things about the war, which seems really intense. Um, but that's how I, I I came here. So it was a six month uh, program where I was running adult literacy projects post like post war, uh, and teaching adults how to read and write for the first time. It was wow, an eighty. 80- 88% illiteracy rate, you know, something, you know, along like almost 90% uh, illiteracy rate the country at the time. And so I was working on projects that would help adults learn how to read and write.
0: That's amazing. And you said that you were there on that project for how long?
1: It was about uh, like 5-6 months was a was the project and then after that um, they did hire end up hiring some of the interns to stay. Mm. But I I ended up uh, making friends with a different group and came back again to Liberia with that same group, with a different group. Um, and they were coming to make a documentary on this orphanage that I had lived at with 86 kids whose parents had been brutally murdered in war. I lived with these people. like I lived at the orphanage. That wasn't my job. I It was just like a, they had an extra room and they let me stay there and I got close to these kids. Um, so, I was helping with that, you know, the film crew make, you know, with, with that story and running errands and just being helpful. Um, to them. And then through that is when I started making friends with all these kids in the street. I'd come back to the capital city of Monrovia because I was living in a remote village. And when I would come into the city, I met all these kids in the street who were selling um, and working and uh, young children, you know, as young as six, seven years old, selling water, selling bananas, uh, wheelbrows of used clothes and all kinds of things. So um, I, you know, I started hanging out with them and asking their name. And for my free time, we'd go to, you know, Liberia's on the on the beach, and it's beautiful, you know, beautiful ocean. So we'd go swimming and throw kids in the ocean. And I would say, if you could have anything in the whole world, what would it be? And the kids were like, we really just want to go to school, hmm. and uh, school wasn't free. Uh, so that's that was kind of the beginning, the beginnings of the organization.
0: And so, at what point did your mind start to realize? I think I'm going to be here for a while because you have been there for a while. And I would imagine that that came at some point. Um, When did that happen?
1: Yeah. I, I don't know if I've ever like put people are like, are you going to spend the rest of your life there? Do you want, you know, and I think a lot of questions are like, are you going to get, people always want to talk about marriage and kids and stuff. You're in your twenties. I don't know. I wasn't really thinking about that. I was, you know, I first started helping these kids get to school and I, I, I didn't know that was going to be my work. I thought like I would just do that for fun, and uh, and my work would be you know helping you know working for an organization, another organization. I'd help some kids on the side. Um, I never in a million years thought that I would have started an organization. Um, I just didn't think that was that wasn't in my dr- you know my dream. That was never like my dream or anything. Um, it happened very organically. So the kids asked me to go to school, and uh, and I did. I helped them, and then it became so many kids. It was like seven turned to thirty. They all bring their, you know, their friends, their neighbors. Um, I was using social media to tell their stories. My space was cool back then. So oh, I was using that's my the space. best. <laughs> and then uh and then from from then, uh, you know, people wired me money from like, you know, my community, my home, you know, my church, where I, all these different places where my school, you know, college, and I'd use that money to pay the kids uh school fees. And then uh and then it kept growing, you know, it kept growing. This New York City tax attorney was like, you should make this a legit organization and you should help, you know, you know, I'll help you do the, the, the paperwork for free pro bono. Um, and I remember talking to one of my friends and just being like, you know, I, I don't think, like I don't have my master's degree. I didn't go to Ivy League college. You know, I'm not qualified. Like, I'm not this enough. I'm not a celebrity. I don't know rich people. I had a million excuses for why I wasn't the right person to, to start an organization. Um, and he gave me some of the best advice I've ever gotten in my life, and he said, Katie, get the F over yourself. It's not about you. Mm. Um, And uh, that it's not about you, it's not about you played in my head over and over again, and that's where the name More Than Me was actually born from, Um, and just a reminder that we're living for something bigger than ourselves, and that it's not even about, it's not your insecurities either, you know, or what you, it's not about what you can and cannot do, it's about you know it's about these children and about they're they're asking your you to help them go to school and you're there um, so I figured you know maybe I'd, I don't know how to write a business plan and I don't know how to fundraise and I never made a website but I'm really good at making friends so I will use what I'm good at and just give it give do my best so I named the organization more than me I never promised children I would help them for more than two years I said I will help you raise money to go to school for this year plus next year and we'll Keep you know we'll keep the conversation going because I never wanted to promise something I couldn't continue. So I don't think I ever knew if I could or what was going to happen. I don't I didn't understand the international development world or the grant writing world or any of that was very very new. Um, And I think as I started to understand it more, and you know you get better and like you you're able to show the work you know the proof of the work you're doing. Um, You know people want to support you and get behind you. Um, and I actually, in the beginning especially, I never, there wasn't one person that I asked to help me that said no. So
0: it's like, Wow. You
1: know, had people help in the beginning. Um, but then that turned into like, you know, it started off as a scholarship program, but you know, you start to realize the problems a lot deeper. Like at first it's like, here's a kid in the street that wants to go to school then you help them go to school and you show up at the school and the teacher doesn't come and the, you know, and then when the teacher does come, there's no materials. The kids are always playing or sleeping and they're not learning anything. Um, and in the beginning days, I didn't really have a lot of, you know, we didn't have big funders or anything, you know, we didn't have any grants or anything like that. I, I was fundraising back with some friends in DC that had helped volunteers and people throwing parties and I had donated my eggs to families who couldn't have babies. I got $8,000. I did it twice. I mean, I was, like, hustling hardcore, living on wow. couches, using couchsurfing.org, no place to live, you know, no income. Um, things got really, really rough and hard for a few years, um, those first few years, and every penny literally going to pay school fees, but you, you can't sustain or maintain or grow an organization like that. No. Um, no. So.
0: And so you were just, like, making friends and then finding ways to support those friends. Um it's crazy that you were like couch surfing and like, like selling eggs. Like that's that's unreal. Actually,
1: I know it's not like when I tell the story, it feels like I'm making it up because it's <laughs> unbelievable. Like it's like and even continued how it keeps going. Like you never think that you're gonna be the person that's selling your eggs to put kids in school, and then. We ended up winning like this, you know, I was doing a bunch of these, it was social media was kind of like a new thing, you know, like everyone's like, oh, social media and companies were doing all these prizes. Like if you like this thing, if you get the most amount of likes, you win $25,000 or there's like, and like there was all these contests and I was in all of them and I won every single contest we were in, we would win them. And I'm like, over my dead body, we will win this money. Because I didn't like know the grant world, you know, like I really just needed a really great grant writer, but I didn't know that. And so I'm like standing in line, like it would be New Year's Eve in the rain in New York City. And I would go to Starbucks by myself with a, you know, with like some borrowed computer and like use the free Wi-Fi from Starbucks and stand in the bathroom lines and ask people to like and vote like crazy stories about voting contests. So. The mother of all voting contests for like charities was the Chase American Giving Award. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, so that was kind of like really a start. More like there's different starting points of the organization, but I feel like like that was a big one. So we ended up on primetime national television, a part of this contest, and. We were one of the finalists. It was 25 people competing for a million dollars. There was no chance we were going to win because we were super tiny. My marketing budget was $5,000. These organizations were $10 million plus organizations. There was no way. Um, but there was a campaign that our team came up with, our team meaning like the volunteers. <laughs> <our> <laughs> like, very, like It was like no paid stuff. But it was, you know, around this little girl named Abigail who was literally involved in sex work at 11 years old because she didn't have any clean drinking water. And she was my friend and, you know, so the campaign was called I am Abigail and it it was the essence of it was that like our humanity is wrapped up in one another. Mm. and people were writing I am Abigail on their forehead and Instagram had just started and like people were like writing it in really like sexual places on their body. I'm like, is that okay? Like, <laughs> and it just like was out of my hands and it like went viral on its own somehow. Like, I don't know how to make things go viral. It was just like families were doing it like, hu- like husbands and wives and like, and, and sons. And like everybody was like writing I am Abigail on their forehead and making that their profile picture and saying vote. And it like spread beyond, you know, our control and, it was Jada Pinkett, Jada Pinkett Smith and all these people that, and anyway, Whoa. we end up winning this like Anthony Bourdain. It was great. And then we won this million dollar thing and a uh, million dollar grant from chase on national television. I No almost, big deal. Whatever. No big deal. I almost like, this is inappropriate, but I'm saying anyway, I almost peed my dress on national television. Like <laughs> when I found out, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I couldn't believe it. I just like, I didn't expect it. Zero. I mean, imagine not expecting that you were going to win a million dollars and you win. Oh yeah,
0: absolutely. Especially when you're like selling eggs and you've got like a $5,000 budget. (laughs) Like that's unreal. Well,
1: that was like our, our marketing and fundraising budget. But then, you know, so then, yeah. So that money didn't come to us all at once. They gave it to us over the course of a few years and helped us build out our fundraising, uh, you know, plan and, but anyway, then we were able to open the first tuition-free all-girls academy here wow. in Monrovia, Liberia, and uh, and that the president came and my mother flew in from New Jersey, oh. and it was like the most amazing day of my life. It was my thirty-first birthday, and we opened the More Than Me Academy. So that that was the that was the school, and it, we started a school because we realized that you know the community really wanted the school. There were they said schools were just they you know. They, unless we had our own school, it wouldn't be a quality school. Like kids would never really learn a lot because mm. that's just the realities of Liberia and the broken education system. They're like, if we want a good school, we need to build our own. Um, so that's what we ended up doing. Uh, and that was in 2013, September 2013. So that was, you know, the, in the first year was really intense. Um, that was a year when Ebola um, Ebola came in 2014. So at the end of their school year mm. was when it started coming.
0: Yeah, tell me about that because uh, Ebola hit Liberia hard, um, and it hit the community that you were in especially hard. Um, Tell me about when Ebola started spreading. How did you find out that this was happening?
1: Yeah, I, I think like we we heard about it at the end of the school year, and the the president closed school early, and we thought that was just like her taking precaution. And like I had to Google like you never know you don't learn these things in school. No. Like, you know, when Ebola attacks, like, do this. Like, I didn't even know what Ebola was. I Googled it, and I was, you know, and and of course there's all this information coming out about it, but it was far away, and it wasn't, it didn't really reach the city yet. But soon it, like, reached the city, and they had closed the school. So I honestly, like, the president evacuated anybody who was not medical staff and like, Ebola medical staff or, you know, or Liberian. So we, like, our team was, our international team was evacuated. I left. I thought I'll go back to the States and work on our like board development and fundraising. And there's so many things to do. And like, Were you worried? No, I I mean, I wouldn't have left if I, I thought it was fine. Like you, the only way you could get Ebola is like by, by exchanging bodily fluids with, with like, with like sick people who had Ebola. So I was like, Oh, come on. There's a couple, there are only a few people that have it. So that was in June, 2014. So I left. And then uh, July things started getting really bad and, um, and then, so then I, it started getting international news more at that point. And um, beginning of August, I was, I remember being in New York City, just thinking like, I can't sit here. And, uh, and it was, start, again, starting to heat up, but it wasn't really in West Point yet. It wasn't until August. West Point is the community. My students come from an area called West Point. And I always say West Point is like the beauty and the beast. And it's <laughs> a hundred, like around, around 100,000 100, people who live in a super condensed area, it's a slum community, they don't have, uh, you know, these are, you know, non-traditional settlements that are, you know, they're made from, houses are made from tin and garbage and some cement, Uh, but it's, it's mostly, you know, these are people, some of the, the poorest people in the country, there's no bathrooms there, you walk in and you, you really know, you get like punched in the face almost, like smacked in the face with life, like everything about the life is there and it's like glaring it's like a baby's born and everybody's celebrating and dancing and laughing and you know they're next to a wedding and a funeral like all happening in like the same area Mm -hmm. and people are mourning so deeply that it like pierces your bones and there's like meat hanging like by the bone and the people are like flies everywhere and they're selling the meat and you're smelling the sense of like all these you know different spices and with like wheelbarrows going in every direction selling everything that you can think about and you know used underwear hair, and shoes and like <laughs> like all oh, craziness it's like a crazy place like people tell me it's like this is what i feel like india would feel like and it's just a lot of people in a lo- in a very small area and and during Ebola you you contract by touching each other so like the idea that if Ebola ever got to west point it would just like completely kill like the entire community because everyone's touching each other just by being alive like mm-hmm. they're you know you don't have to try it's like you're standing on top of each other so that's where our students come from and that, you know, it's like the most vulnerable area of the country and, you know, arguably in West Africa. And uh, and so we're like, there, you know, there's no way Ebola is going to hit West Point because it's just, you know, there's like, only a few people that have it. So then in August came and things were in this, you know, Ebola was in the city. I was definitely really worried. I, I had actually truthfully, we went on a first family vacation and I, we were in somewhere in like Dominican Republic and I was sick to my stomach. I was the worst person on the vacation, because all I could talk about it was Ebola. Hey. I was like, I was like ruining my mother and my sister, like, we've never in our lives been on a family vacation, and here, you know, I'm ruining it, and uh, and I remember just being like, I have to leave. So I ended up uh, telling my board that I had to go back to, you know, I need to go back and see what's going on. I had seen a picture in like the New York Times or some major magazine of our students Uh, And they were involved in this, like, mob violence riot thing, like, outside of the. There's only one public school in the community of 100,000 people. And somehow someone got the bright idea to make this public school the Ebola Overflow Center, which means there were only two treatment units where you could get help for Ebola in the country. And anybody who like if there were there were only a few beds like a handful of beds and so the if there were when there were more people who had ebola than they could treat in the other treatment units they're like let's bring the sick people to the overflow center which was in west point like it didn't make it, it made oh, no sense no. so the community flipped out and they like there were sick people and bloody beds and the community was like you're trying to kill us there's distrust with the government and they ransacked this the overflow center which was this their school they took out the bloody mattresses. No one knows where they went. And I saw a photo of all of this uh, in one of these like magazines or New York Times or whatever. And my student Albernita is like a fourteen-year-old, thirteen-year-old student is there in the middle of it. And I was still in the state, so I was like, "Oh wow!" I called my board. I'm like, "Ebola is now in West Point. Our students are there. Like, if I don't go back, like, you know, I don't know what's going on." I call. I'd call our staff and one staff would be like, oh, everybody, you know, everybody's fine. It's everything's under control. No problem. I call someone else and they're like, it's wartime and they're closing the ports and the, you know, we're all going to die of starvation. And like, and I just didn't know what to believe. And so, and then I saw that photo. I was like, I need to go back and just see what's going on. Yeah. And then I can channel, Like, let me help channel funding to the organizations and people who are doing the most on the front lines. So I came back. Isn't outside. Liberia
0: quarantined at this time? How did how did you how were you gonna get back in?
1: I know, and I worried about that. I was like, over my dead body, I'm coming. Like <laughs> I will canoe. I will. I will sneak in somehow. And that's what I was thinking too, Brandon. I was like, how? You know, are they gonna let us in? Are they? Get, they won't let you. Like you. Like they weren't letting people leave unless they had a visa. But I guess like if you, you know, you could come in. And I honestly, I didn't have any problems getting in. I, and but nobody was on my flight like the only, there was like a, someone who worked at like this the Center for Disease Control, CDC on the flight. But other than that, there was nobody. And I remember being on the flight back, just being like, have I completely lost my mind? Like, why am I okay with all of this? And adrenaline by that time had like taken over and I was like in prepared myself. I was like, for what you know, I'm go here I am going into this. What felt like, you know, I had signed over my like, what is it called where you sign over your rights so they can take care of your remains? Like my I had to do that before I left wow. in case I died. Like that. So I, I kind of knew like there was a chance I could get sick. Everybody that at that point was in hysteria. So like, I don't know. Like, I, so I showed up and uh, I was staying at the ho- at a hotel. I live, I have a house in the community, like one of the communities, it's called Capitol Hill, but the, everybody, there were like people sick and dying. There was actually a 17 year old boy across the street from my house that was dead in his room waiting for, you know, there, no one had picked up this body yet. So my, my board had said, you can go, but you have to stay in the hotel where CDC and CNN and all the reporters are staying, at least w- until you get a handle around what's going on. And then we can decide what happens after that. Um, so that was what happened. And, um, you know, there's, there's lots of stories, a million stories in, in there. Um, what would you, I would like to tell you at least one.
0: Yeah. About- <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the first thing that you did when you got there? So you show up, you go straight to the hotel.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it, I'm used to seeing a very like lively city and a lively country, with, you know, with people selling and, like I said, music playing and people dancing and like, no matter how poor Liberia is, like the people are full of life and that was gone. It felt like a ghost town. There was a curfew for 9 p.m. and uh, you didn't see many, like nobody was moving around because everyone was told to stay home and the market had been shut down and West Point, which is the community where our girls live, was quarantined because as as a, resu- as a punishment to ransacking the overflow center, I think that, you know, the, the people in control thought that the community was just, like, riddled with Ebola now. If, if they didn't have it, they certainly have it now. And so they quarantined them as basically a punishment or, or to keep everybody else safe. Um, and the community is, was, West Point was extremely angry that, you know, they were being punished and basically jailed and quarantined as a community. So when I arrived, I was like, the first thing I wanted to do was get into West Point and make sure our students were okay. Um, Our Liberian staff had already been like, you know, we didn't make them like fight Ebola. We we just kind of, the thing was like, this is going on if you want to be a part of it, great. Like we need you. If you don't want to be a part of it, we understand like everyone's still going to get paid. Like our teachers, our finance people, everybody. Um, And everybody decided they wanted to be a part of this. This was their country, their communities. They wanted to work. Um, so we, you know, the first thing we did was, you know, we wanted to make sure no, we didn't touch anybody. That was the main thing. And we wore the right protective gear. We had gloves and, 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 um, goggles and, and, you know, we kept, we had boots on and we wore long sleeves and pants and we went to, we went inside West Point and, um, we weren't supposed to go in or out, but I, but the police that were guarding West Point knew that we had a role in the community and thought that maybe we could help. Um, actually even some people that I talked to in the US government said the same thing like if you have a relationship with this community, like maybe you can use that leverage that that relationship to try to help uh, because there was a lot of confusion, oh, wow. distrust, and miscommunication. Um, and it, it there was I mean there is a, a history of distrust from this community to the to the government so, um, anyway, we went in, made sure our girls were okay. Everybody was fine. I mean, of course, the first thing, I was afraid passing the quarantine line, More less afraid of Ebola and more afraid of the, it felt like the tension was so thick you could cut it like a piece of cake and put it on a plate. Like the only people I saw inside West Point were like the New York, like everybody was like the the journalists. Journalists were there um, and then the people who lived there were there. Um, and then there was Dr. Fala. Also, he was like this amazing Liberian hero who doesn't live in West Point, but grew up there. And, um, you know, there was a couple people that were, were helping out like as individuals. But like, as far as organizations were concerned, you, like I didn't really see any, I couldn't see anybody helping or doing anything. So the community, WHO called a meeting, the World Health Organization and brought all the community together. So it was pretty cool. Like the community was so organized, like the elders and the You know, the Muslim group, the Christian group and the women's group and the youth group and everybody came together and the World Health Organization um, was there and just basically was trying to communicate like and get information about what the like, what's the issue? Why are, you know, are people sick? Are they not like just trying to collect information? And it was really hard for me to sit there and be quiet. I was invited to that meeting because like the guy didn't, the guy that was speaking was so kind and so nice, but he didn't like understand or speak Liberian English And so, like, the people didn't understand him. They couldn't understand his English. Oh, that was it. So I was like, (laughs) I wanted to, like, take over the meeting. But, I like, I waited for him to finish. And when he left, very nice guy. He did great work during Ebola. But when they left, I asked the community. I was like, hey, you know, I'm with more than me. Everybody knows the free girls' school. Like, what is the biggest problem? And what can we do to help? And they're like, well, we call for an ambulance. And an ambulance doesn't come for four days. And I was like, so if we get an ambulance, will you help run it? Like, who will take and the And the chief opinion officer, his name's Kenneth Martu, he's his, his title for the community, chief opinion officer. He's like, yes, we will. And so that was the main thing. The first thing we did was like, we got an ambulance. The community, many of the fathers of our students agreed to drive it. And we started taking calls for sick people and we were able Wait, to reduce.
0: How do you get an ambulance?
1: I know. I was like, <laughs> We we were, you know, um, it was the last. It was the Nissan dealer. It was the last one for sale in the country, and uh, it was they they had them for sale. And it was like I think what they actually did was outfitted like an SUV into like look like an ambulance. But they they changed it to, you know, they sold it to us. It was the last one in the country. We bought it. It worked. And, uh, and the idea was, like, we were able to change the wait time from four days to 15 minutes for people who called for an ambulance. Wow. So that obviously was a game changer for people because if you call for an ambulance and you don't get anybody for four days, by that time you're sick and you've now infected your whole family with the virus. And you're living in a little house. Like, your house is the size of, you know, a tiny bedroom with everybody basically, like, when you're sleeping, you're you're touching each other. Like, people touch while they're sleeping. And, you know, you got on average, like seven to 12 people living in these rooms, um, if someone vomits or has diarrhea, like everyone's going to get sick. And, and you love the person, so you can't help yourself but want to touch them or help them. So people were just getting sick like crazy. It was like snowballing. Um, you know, when I got there, like August and September, I, I really started to think that like the, the Liberian people would be completely deaf. Like there would be no more Liberian people. Like everyone was going to die. Uh, that's how it felt that was the sense oh, wow. that the communities had um it was there was no help there were there weren't enough treatment units the ambulances were there was no way then we got our ambulance there was nowhere to bring anybody like because there were no beds like the the treatment units that you know some were obviously good but some of them didn't weren't staffed like people were on strike um you know it was just like it felt like complete chaos um and but like dead people in the middle of it like people like dead people on the street people asking, you know, you're not allowed to touch anybody, so everyone's afraid. And, and this is, these are people that usually help like this community in Liberia's culture is to take care of one another and take each other in. And it was asking them to do something that, that who was like adamantly against the, the nature of who they were, which is to like isolate yourself and don't touch anybody, mm-hmm. like don't help anybody. And so we were seeing children who were like left behind because their parent went to the treatment unit or some of the kids that, like, this is literally, we, we brought our ambulance to one of the overflow centers called Redemption, Redemption Hospital. We're sitting there in the craziest scene you can imagine, and there's, like, a woman died in front of us, uh, in front of our ambulance, like, in the car, in front of us. There's screaming mourners all around. And then there's these garage doors, which is where, the, like, the entrance to the hospital, which it's really usually the back of the hospital, but here now it's the front and they open up, and there's all these people laying on the ground, or like half off of a bed, and they're—it's like the living amongst the dead were all there. And my gut reaction, I was, you know, with one of my t- other team members, was to like run. There were no, there wasn't any water, and was to run inside with water. So we like start handing out like bags of water to people, and we look up and we see these guys like in full-on moon suits walk around the corner, like, the full-on protective gear. And we're looking at each other. We're, like, not in our – we're, like, we have gloves on and goggles. Oh, wow. And I'm, like – and we're, like, what are we doing in here? So we, like, we run out and, like, we're crying under our goggles. But, like, you just can't help yourself. For, you know, you're, like – you think you're strong enough to see a kid dying alone without anybody around them and, and you can control yourself. But you're just, like, your human reaction is, like – it's, like, a knee-jerk reaction is to do something and to help. Um, so that, and then like, and then another ambulance pulls up and they're removing like the dead bodies and putting them into the back of this pickup truck. And our ambulance filled with a family, like of children as like legit, like mom is there with her sister holding a baby that's on the verge of death. The nose is bleeding. And I have photos of all of this is like real, like not exact, I'm under exaggerating anything like underplaying. And then this ambulance pulls up they're taking the dead people out and then i look at the ambulance and there's a little girl like in a pink party dress she's like 3 years old she's sitting on the steps of the ambulance and i'm like what is this child doing there like who is she why is she in the middle of this crazy scene is she sick and they they they, they, pull, they open the back of the ambulance and they pull out her mother she had just watched her mother die in front of her inside of the ambulance and the the community had refused to take this child in because they knew that she would be sick or she might get sick there's a ch- you know her mother's sick or one of her other relatives died so not nat- you know naturally they would take in a child like this and and say i will take care of you um but because they had to protect their own families yeah. you know they weren't sure if you had the disease You, it takes there was this whole thing of counting down 21 days to see if your symptoms start showing So I asked the the girl her name, and she said her name was Perlina. She was like the sweetest little thing. And I'm like, Perlina, I look at her, I'm like, I love you. And I asked them where they were going to bring her, and they're like, well, they're going to bring her inside the holding center into redemption. where I'm like, you're going to bring this child into all there. And I said, why? And they said, because the community rejected her. And I was like, is she sick? Does she have any of the symptoms? And they said, no, but there's nowhere else. Nobody else will take her. And I was like, I'll take her. So that was like when we decided we were gonna. We had a. We have an extra building, and we turned it into a quarantine zone for children with, um, you know, Disney movies and Mm. ice cream, and we brought in social workers and a you know a trained team to be able to protect themselves and and the children and count down 21 days with kids. Um, But there was at that time there wasn't any other spot for them. Eventually, places you know, you know a month or so later, places opened up, and then we were. You know, so we, we saw ourselves at the time. We, were, we had a plan. It, was, it wasn't like we were just doing anything. It was like from A to Z, this is how to get rid of Ebola. And this is what to do if you see a child. And at the end of it, it's like when you can do nothing else, sing and bring dignity and death. So we were like doing a lot of singing and praying with people as they died.
0: So you just used the phrase bringing dignity to death. Tell me more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at one point it was, you know, August, September of like the the heaviest hit months of Ebola. It was sometimes felt as though you know, I think in that scene where I met Perlina and, you know, in in this intense scene, I remember calling one of my 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 best friend and and a board member and saying, What do I do? I mean we've we've done everything we can possibly do. And here are these kids are just there was a little boy dying outside, you know, Charlie eight years old by himself. You know, it's just really heartbreaking the whole situation. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I was feeling bummed, you know, obviously really like sad. And she said, Katie, just sing. And, you know, the people love when you sing and sing the Liberian gospel songs. They love that. And, um, and she was right. Like, I was like, okay, let me go. I gotta go. I gotta go. And so I just like started singing prayers with people as they were dying. And that became a part of our model. Like, you know, a bring awareness around what the disease is. It's like B active case finders, find the sick people. You know, C. When you identify a sick people, if they have these symptoms, call the ambulance. You know, D. The ambulance comes and picks them up, and all of this is d- done with dignity. But it's like when you get to the point where there, there's like A, B, C, D, E. You've done all the steps, and it's like someone's dying right now. You know, and there's no place for them to go. You know, there's no family around. You're that person, and like it's almost like you know God has you there in that moment. And we're not a religious organization. I mean, I I think that, but we all just believe ultimately. You know, that that human life has there's dignity in it and like every is valuable um, and that we should love. And, and so it's like you're there to be that person's family in that moment. Like their family's not around. That child's mother isn't there. Like you're the child's mother right now. And um, and like so oftentimes we would I'd be sitting there. You know, everybody kind of did their own thing. But from, I remember telling this little boy, Charlie, like your mom loves you she's proud of you she's here with you even though you can't see i was making up stuff you know you don't you have to make up things like i don't know i was just trying to say anything i could say to comfort people you know praying with them you know and and then singing with them and and, and that was it it's like you do everything you do to keep people alive and when you can't do anything else sing and bring dignity and death these are human beings you know we're here and we're lucky and privileged to be in this moment with this person while they're passing and do everything you can to bring dignity because it just seemed like people were just dying on the road with nobody around, they couldn't move, you know, they couldn't talk barely, you know, and, and you know, there was very little we could do at that point, you know, there, if there were no beds left or if that person was already on their way out before we were going to be able to get them any help anyway, um, do what you need to do to show love at that moment. Um, so there was a lot of that, especially, uh, you know, when things were, were really out of control um, and there was no, there weren't, there wasn't much help. And that was really the, re- you know, Redemption Hospital was like the, the number one place for that. Um, there was one time where I left. I couldn't, it was that back to that little boy, Charlie. I couldn't leave. I le- I mean, I was like, I, I, we had to keep, we had to keep going. We had to go fill up water. You know, there's other things. We had to go, go talk to the Minister of Health so she can get water delivered to the, you know, the things we had to do. So, you know, you sang, we pray, you give the kid water, you tell him he's loved, his mom loves him, and you leave. And uh, and so we left and I just couldn't get the kid out of my head and it was getting to be darker, you know, nighttime. And I told my team, I said, I'm I'm going back to Redemption Hospital. I can't get that kid out of my head. We just, just go check on it. And so it was like right eight thirty at night or so. And we went to the the, um, the supermarket closed at nine. So we went to the supermarket and I bought every single toy they had in the supermarket. I'm like, fill it up, fill it up. And you know candy we even bought ice cream which was probably stupid because it was like gonna melt but whatever (laughs) and uh, and we just went in and you know we got into redemption in the middle like went inside dressed in full protective gear head to toe and just we were like the toys and ice cream crew of um, you know finding the kids I mean there were parents there too I remember I'll never forget telling this weeping mother she was weeping that her other child died you know because we're like handing out toys and she was sad like her kid didn't You know wasn't there to get a toy because they died and i like looked at this woman like i was the biggest like like almost like i felt like a monster you know in the moment but i was like mama you got another child here you need to be strong and like you just like get your act together for your other child like you know and that was kind of like the mentality you know but trying to be full of love but also like Mm -hmm. you know like people were panicking and you know they needed some sense in them so we found Charlie inside. I went looking for him, and we gave him ice cream. And I asked him. He could barely talk. This was probably his last moments of life. And said, if you could have, um, you know, I'll, if you get out of here, I'll get you. A, I'm going to buy you a new bicycle. You know, like I, I had read some article where it was like the psychosocial of a child or people, like, if they believe there's hope outside, they will like, fight harder to stay alive. So I was like, do you want a bicycle? And I said, do you want a red bicycle? And he, he shook his head no because he couldn't really speak. And uh, so we're like trying to talk to him because he couldn't really talk. He said he was eight and he was Charlie. And, uh, and, and whatever, I just remember standing over him and I'm like crying. And he said like whispered, cause he could barely talk. And he looked at me and he said, God will bless you. Here's like an eight year old boy telling, like, trying to comfort me in his last moments. Um, and I just remember my friend was like trying to get me to go. It was like time to go. We're like squashing through vomit, feces and blood through like this horror scene of, dead children like people mixed together the like people were alive and dead mixed together because people were dying and then while they're dying you know like there's nobody to pick them up right away you got to wait till the next day till the you know till the people come the red cross was removing the dead bodies so you know it was just i remember standing there just being like i'm not leave." like i didn't want to leave i said i'm not leaving my friends like pulling me like try to fight with me i'm like we're fighting in the middle of the scene a little bit but I never saw him again after that, but that's that's a little bit of of showing, you know. And like, there were people dying outside that were naked or half naked, and you cover them with lapa, like the Liberian African cloth, and just do whatever you can. That's it. It was just that you know. Hopefully, you know, so we definitely saved countless lives, but it, you know, for the lives we couldn't save, it was like just being there to love.
0: That's absolutely beautiful. I. I remember when this was happening and I had somehow stumbled across your Instagram um because I was reading the news I was reading the media and it just felt so hopeless um reading everything that was happening in Liberia and so I was I was in search of somebody who was sharing a little bit more truth if you will because I you know that when you're in a situation like that there is hope and there is dignity and there is beauty it's just a lot harder to find and it's not what like the mainstream media is going to necessarily report immediately. And so I stumbled across your Instagram and you're sharing these stories in real time. Um, Do you remember what people's reactions were?
1: No, it was like, I'm actually like, I'm writing a book right now and I'm writing the Ebola chapter and I am writing about this. And it was this community, like every day I would come, I'd like take photos all day long I remember feeling uncomfortable at first about taking pictures, but then one of my, actually Esther, who you heard me singing with the other day, she's like, Katie, you got to tell the world what's really happening. Like, you know, you, so I, then I was like, forget it. Well, I got to stop caring what anybody thinks and just like, you know, this, people want the, the world to know what's going on. So I would take photos all day in the craziest scenes. Like I had to tell a mother that her daughter died. Like I couldn't even get the words out of my mouth. I couldn't say it. It was the most horrific thing. That's by far the worst thing I've ever had to do.
0: I can't even imagine.
1: No, I just put my head down and started weeping and like the mom went crazy. And, uh, you know, and so I took I took a picture of her weeping because I wanted people to know it was this is a these are real human beings. This is a real mother.
0: It's not just numbers.
1: No, and then, like, in the middle of all that, I saw one of my girls, like, in West Point playing dress-up with, like, makeup, all this weird makeup and, like, funny clothes on. I took a fit Regina. I'm, like, here in the middle of craziness, like, active case finders and ambulance, you know, and moon suits, here's this child playing dress-up. Like, because she's a person. And I was showing a lot of baby Katie, who's, like, my namesake, my best friend Esther's daughter, because I'd come back after this insane day, and, like, she would be, she represented like she was happy and normal she's a kid she's a three-year-old child at the time and,
0: and she's the future of Liberia
1: yeah and you know I was just trying to show that like you're not this is not a disease you're fighting for some you know like I think when you're so far away you don't under Africa feels so far away but like Liberia is the same you know we all have everybody's got family and they got they have people they love and their children and their wife or their husband and you know that you you've got jobs that you're not doing or you know you've, you've got everybody's it's very we've got a lot to connect that a lot of humanity that does connect us and and that's what I've heard my Instagram page became so I was taking the photos that day during the day and then I'd come back every day as like part of my own therapy and like I'm a sharer I'm a naturally extroverted I love like I like sharing and it makes me feel better so I was able to get it all out on Instagram and my Instagram page became like international news at some point. So they were like using it for like, you know, people magazine and Mary Claire's women. Like they, they started taking articles. I didn't know they picked 25 women that like, or whatever, 10 women that were, you know, I was, cause I was highlighting not just like obviously the work we were doing, but I was showing everybody's work. I'm like, here's Marie from this organization. And like, these were the people that were fighting and it, and what you learn is that it's not an organization that, like, of course, there's some great organizations out there. But it's human beings inside those organizations. And that really made the difference. And it, and it was communities and people that just had compassion and that did something. Um, and, and social media was a big outlet for that. And then people were writing really encouraging comments. And um, I feel like I gained a lot of friends, like a lot of people I've never met through that. And I always say, like, we built more than me. I said we were founded on MySpace. We built our school through Facebook, and we helped helped end Ebola through Instagram. You know, those photos were were able to highlight what was needed and used as a way to, to you know, direct funding to where where it should go, and um, and and able to help the rest of the world to understand that this wasn't you know moon suits in space. This was Baby Kate, you know, and and Carlina,
0: and it was successful. You know, Ebola went away, and it. It unfortunately took a lot of lives in the process, but Ebola is non-existent in Liberia.
1: Yes, thankfully. It is currently, there are currently no cases of Ebola.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, How do you recover from seeing so much? You were there, you experienced things that most people will never, ever experience a fraction of. How do you come out of this?
1: yeah I don't I don't think that I will ever be the same nor do I ever I don't want to be I don't really want to recover um, of course I don't want to walk around crying or like there's this backpack I was in a treatment unit myself with the symptoms and there's this backpack that I was wearing that they burned and every time I see people wearing it it brings back these memories that I get I, I the first two years I was getting flashes of dead dead children you know and um, and I don't see the flashes of dead children anymore but I definitely Don't feel like I will ever be the same again, like, and I don't want to be. And I'm channeling that hurt and that anger and disgust in those those emotions, and the beauty of you know the beauty that I saw of communities coming together and people coming together to support those communities um, into into uh, you know helping to rebuild the entire education system. And that is uh, it's happening, and it's unbelievable what's been happening. And I'm proud of it. And and you know if these people that that died, like Sarah, who I looked into her eyes and told her she was gonna be okay, and she died. Like if I just had moved on and, and went back to the way that things were before that, we had our one school and we kept going, I'm not sure. I don't know what I how I would have really recovered. But I think recovering for me is to make sure this never happens again and, and doing every doing my part in that. You know, what is my part to make sure this never happened again? I know the names and stories of dozens of people that died, you know, I I, I knew the faces of a lot more. And, uh, and I'm still connected to their their living family members, if they have any survivors. And, uh, and there's no way that I can just pretend like that, that that didn't happen and go go on like everything is normal. Um, So what actually happened after that was, um, I know that the root cause of Ebola, the root cause of sexual exploitation, which we have, which we deal with every day with our students, and and the root cause of extreme poverty in this country is the lack of systems that makes the country so weak. And because of that weakness, you're able to have an epidemic like Ebola, or you're able to have a civil war. Um, and at the root of those, that weakness is the is lack of education. You can't build a health infrastructure or justice infrastructure or any infrastructure if you don't have human capacity to do that. And human capacity is, starts with basic education for all. And to me, that's a human right. Um, So I've been working with the Ministry of Education to help rebuild the education system. Um, The largest education reform that's ever taken place in a nation happened. It's called Partnership Schools for Liberia. Um, After we helped catalyze that, we're now working to ourselves to manage. um, We have managed six public schools this year, plus our own. So seven schools, and we're growing to 500 in five years. Um, And we're not stopping until every child receives their basic human rights of, of, of safety, health, and quality education. Um, Because we know that that's the way to really prevent kids from being sexually exploited like Abigail or from an Ebola epidemic like Sarah died in, you know, or to prevent war, which many people here have those stories of of their families being ripped apart. Um, So that's how I recover. Um, But better yet, if you don't mind, I have a I write and perform spoken word poetry. And that's one of my ways also for coping through things is um, I put I channel that emotion into words. Um, and and I'd love to share one of those poems with you.
0: Oh, I would absolutely love that. I would love it.
1: Okay, the poem is really intense. <laughs> um, it's, I call it my Ebola poem, and and the song that I'm singing here is one of the songs that I would sing um, while people were were, were dying around. Um, thank you, thank you, my Lord. We just have to say thank you thank you my lord men in moon suits shovel corpses like the rubble bodies piled high in the back of pickups crowds across the street keep their distance and the sounds of morning screams are constant people lie like dogs on the street the treatment units are full and their cries for help go unanswered because the world's afraid to come too close in rubber boots on bended knee The stench of death was mixed with feces. His soft baby cheeks were against the dirt and dust. There was no ma for his hand to cup, alone in a bath of his own blood. His big brown eyes looked at the world with love. I asked him his name, he could barely speak. Then softly he told me, I'm Charlie. He reached for my arm, but I had to back up as much as I wanted to hold him. This is an enemy that preys on love. If only my songs could hold his face, encircle him in warm embrace, the soft notes down his back I'd trace. Thank you, thank you, my lord, we just have to say thank you. Death tolls are rising like the tide, Tension is more tangible than touch. Bodies are being buried in mass graves while experts sip coffees and lattes, have cocktail parties and all-day debates on the best strategies and philosophies that determine the fate of these communities that they have never even fucking been to. So I beg you now, please help. Boots on the ground is what we need. We are out of water and PPEs. No bleach, no bed, and no IVs. Wages for employees? Hospitals transmitting more disease. A country that lacks complete capacity. And there was Esther hairnet on her head, in a woman's oversized flower dress, the people all around her sang, arms stretched to the sky in praise, but Esther wouldn't stop crying. This is a survivor's party, except there was nothing about her that was happy. She survived Ebola, but when she woke up from her coma, she learned that her entire family didn't. She was about to be released, except for there was nobody there to get her. In a country without adoption and with no foster care system, where will she go and the world leaves her in the hands of of the Liberian government that is vividly broken as you freak out about an outbreak in America that will never freaking happen for God's sake get a grip Sarah was stronger than any human being I've ever known I gave her two teddy bears and a phone we stood outside of the Ebola treatment unit and I looked into her eyes and I told her that she was going to be just fine to fight with all her might I lied she walked down that dark hall, and she never came back out. Are you sure? She seemed so strong. Sometimes they just dropped dead. I couldn't get the words out. I just looked at her mother. My lips quivered. I dropped my head and sobbed. She got the message and collapsed. She flung her limbs in the air and shook. No place to say her last goodbyes. No, I love you, baby. No tears to wipe. No hands to hold throughout the night. No forehead for her to kiss goodbye. Sarah's life is gone. The world doesn't stop. The debate goes on, the blame goes on, the corruption, the disorganization, the fight for attention, the jealousy, this circus goes on. She is gone, gone, gone. We let this go on and now her precious life has slipped gone. I'm not okay and I don't think that anyone gets it, no one. These images won't go away. They stain my mind and keep me awake. I think about that little girl just dead on a bench or Sarah's mother's face. I sometimes weep thinking about what a lonely, inhumane death small Charlie had. It's sad and it's dark. But then I think about all the survivors, like Esther. All she has lost, but she has life. I have life, you have life, and we must use it to our max. This will never be okay until we make sure it never happens again.
0: That was absolutely beautiful so powerful Katie Wow
1: thank you thanks for letting me share I wrote it after I mean I had all these feelings and I've tried to like it was I, actually that that poem is a compilation of a lot of like different journal entries and like even things I was writing on my Instagram subject like like this descriptions with the photos but um you know the I was speaking at an event for 30 under 30 asked me to specifically give a poem about Ebola so that helped me put it all there and I was I was sharing that poem in Israel, which was like really like a strange, you know, it was very uh, layered. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, at the end I say this will never be okay until we make sure it never happens again. And, and so that's what, that's what we've been up to now. And um, it's not as sexy as obviously as Ebola, like people, Ebola is the scary, crazy thing that's getting all this attention and it can hurt you. But people don't realize that like the route to that, that scariness and why we were all so afraid are the, you know, is the broken systems that allowed for that to happen. And, and it's not as sexy to talk about. And, um, and obviously, there's a lot of people doing great work to, to address it. But oftentimes, and, and we know this, and I'm writing about this in the book is, um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the aid is just, it's not going, there's, it's not directed, and it's not going to, to the root causes, and it's not cohesive. So what I'm really excited about is rather than just complaining about that, or pointing fingers of blame, and and not watch anything change is that we have this project. You know, it's not really a project. It's a, it's partnership schools for Liberia is that every child, in, you know, is in a public school receiving their basic human rights um, through education. And, and there's many partners working to make it happen. And it's really exciting um, and it's been inspired by all the work that happened together during Ebola when people came together, especially communities that fought on their own children's behalf. And that's what's happening here. Um, so it's really I don't know, I'm super pumped to be here. It's been this year,'s been one of the best years of my life just seeing seeing kids go from zero to you know to to learning <laughs> in classrooms with basic human rights.
0: And what are you excited about in the future? What are some of the things you're continuing to build on? Um, and then on a personal level, you know, you you alluded to this before and then people ask you this all the time, but you know, do you see yourself in Liberia permanently?
1: Yeah, I definitely want to answer that because I think that's interesting. It's like just in general, I think it's the way society thinks about, you know, let me let me first just answer that because I'm talking about society. I think especially in America, like there's this assumption of how your life is going to look and, you know, and because of that, there's like pressure around it and pressure from your family to, you know, pressure to make a certain amount of money or to, to do a certain thing. And of course, we all need to like live and you want to live comfortably. You want to be able to take care of your children. Um. But I don't know. I, I think that like I didn't, I haven't for so many years. I didn't really give myself space to think about that stuff. I, I moved to Liberia when I was 23 and just like kind of put my head down and we, you know, started working really hard. And uh, and I, of course, in my heart, like you want to find a partner and be in love, and you think about like adopting kids or having a baby. I think that's a part of being a person. I don't know. A lot of people feel those things. Um, but first, like first and foremost, you know, was this desire and passion to to really see this vision, you know, my vision for more than me fulfilled. Um, And in doing that, um, I've, you know, personally, I I have met a partner and I'm excited. He's, you know, he's, you know, he, you know, and if I hadn't, Oh, well, you know what I mean? Like I love that, that I get to live a life where I'm filled with purpose and doing what I love every day. Um, And Mm. I am excited that I have a partner, but it's like, if I didn't, it's not like I'm not defined by having, or not having a partner. I think that's how the, the Western world or, or not even the Western world, the world and societies in general define so much of our lives by that. Um, and I want to be more defined by, you know, what I, what, you know, by how much love, how much did I, how much of myself was I able to like give to the world and like how much, how much did I love and how much did I get to live what I believed I was created to do? Um, and those things to me seem, seem like formal and, par- form, you know, like paramount in my life. I want to be everything I was made to be. And if, if that includes like, falling in love and having kids great if it doesn't like uh, that'll be okay too you know and um and i think there's a lot of space and room to have conversations around that um too i know that this is probably not the podcast for that <laughs> a different one and then i think like the vision ultimately and what i see for the future um is that we we would i hope that we do our job so effectively that we're not needed like i want to go out of business in liberia because we accomplished our job and and you know it's more than just a job but it's like This country only has four million people. It's it's a tiny country, four to five million. It's it's less than half my state of New Jersey, where I was born. Or like, I don't know. I think about New York because I'm from that area, and it's like New York has eight million people. New York City, like half the city is like Liberia, and um, or I think like the state of Tennessee actually is the 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 same. How many? What's your population side there?
0: Six point five million.
1: Yeah. So. So this, um, you know, the population of Liberia is smaller than the six point five million people living in in the whole state of Tennessee. Wow! And it's like, a, it, like international aid on at on at you know at you know in general has failed. And what I hope that I can be a part of is is in, in what we're on track to do, which is so exciting, is to make sure that it doesn't here. You know, it doesn't need to. And you know, I, I thought about like. What is how what is needed to actually make sure every child here receives their basic human rights? Because that's where it starts. If the kids have that, then they can build their own, you know, healthcare systems and their own justice systems. I always think about those because those are the ones I see so often working with kids. But all the systems, transportation and lands, and all these different infrastructures that make, you know, that are that include basic human rights. That you know that are less fun and sexy to talk about, but are all included. Um, but what what I want to do is um, I need to raise in order to do you know to accomplish that. Um, we have to raise $25 million, and uh, in, I have five years to do it. So that's what I'm, I'm hoping to do, and, um, you know, I, I don't know, I, and our work will continue. We'll, have, we'll be in 500 schools um, personally, but the other we have other partner organizations that work in the rest. And the goal is that every single um, – there's 2,750 uh, public primary schools here, and that every single school would have a partner, and that that partner would work to ensure that kids have their basic human rights through those schools. Um, our goal is to get to 500 in five years. And in order to do that, we have to raise $25 million. Um, and that's $5 million for a year for five years, which sounds really overwhelming. But it, to re- break it down simply, I'm here in my fundraising pitch. I'm trying not to be pitch I, I'm not trying to pitch people. I'm no, to this be like, is just exciting. Yeah, I think it's so exciting. And it is like if I can, if we can get. Um, you know if you raise five hundred or if you raise five million dollars a year for five years that then we can accomplish this goal um, and so that 's four th- if, if you want to break it into small terms but of, of course we're also um, we have some major donors helping but um, if fourteen thousand people gave thirty dollars a month for five years, we would reach our goal um, and then wow. what that looks like on the ground is just like we're we 're not running the what we're doing is we're working with schools, and those schools are failing. Like we show up. I have another poem and another session on like education, but that's another day. But they're failing, and we're working to with those communities and those teachers to make sure they have enough teachers that they're trained, that they have the supplies that they need. Um, and long term, the government is actually paying for the teachers, so the, the plan long term is is it will be self sustained or self paid for, which um, I find to be exciting because my ultimate goal is uh is to go out of business because we've accomplished our accomplish what we've tried
0: to do that's incredible and what's amazing is that everybody listening to this podcast or everybody that you've encountered has seen liberia at its lowest point you know they've seen the media they've seen the news reports they've seen um you know what ebola did to the country and what you're doing is you're casting a vision for what liberia can be at its highest what liberia can be at its best and not only that but the you guys are well on your way there and you've been one of the biggest catalysts for change um, in this community. And so this is, it's just exciting to hear about where Liberia could go uh, with the work that you're doing.
1: Yeah. And I, I also think that like what I hope, you know, cause what this podcast is, podcast is all about is like cynicism, the optimism is like you could choose to, you know, sit and, And you can, like, I think being in this, in international development and aid, there's a really good documentary about, you know, that they, it's called, um, I, I, shoot, I forget There's a documentary about like how aid has failed and all this stuff. And we all like people who work in this field, like see that. And you see, you see a lot of things that don't work. You do see small things that work here and there. But I mean, if you don't do anything to change it, like it's not going to change. And it's like, you don't Mm -hmm. just give up either. And, and the only time that things, if you look into our world, like when big major changes have happened and you've seen huge successes that we've, as humanity, when we've taken a step forward, it's because there's been somebody crazy enough to believe that that can actually happen. And you need the crazies, like you need to be optimistic and you need to believe that, that better things can happen. And, and, uh, you know, and, and I, I hope that with my life, of course, I'm, I'm, you know, I hope that the rest of my life, I don't need to stay in Liberia because we accomplished what we needed to do um this is kind of like a home for me so I imagine I will always come back um you know I don't where I would go I'm marrying in Ethiopia I am getting married I'm marrying an Ethiopian guy he wants to do this in Liberia, Ethiopia congratulations <laughs> Woo. so we'll do it again there but I'm not leaving until I don't want to leave or expand until we've accomplished what we've put we've here but what I want to do with my life is two things and one is like ensure that children have their basic human rights you know And that through education and school is a a way for that to happen. And to me, that's about, that's love. Like I believe in loving, loving others, you know, like, and that's the, that's the way I want to show it practically. But then I also hope that my life can show others that ordinary people can, can do extraordinary things. And, and I think that if you look during Ebola, it's like, I am not, I'm a girl from New Jersey. My mother was a single mom. She worked at Lipton tea factory making minimum wage. I don't have a big fancy degree. I'm a person who believed that will not stop fighting. I will die or I will see, you know, it's like my friend, I'll never forget my friend telling me this. He's like, Katie, you will accomplish your dream or you will die trying. And I think you just have to have this mentality of like, I'm not stopping, like I'm moving forward. I'm going to continue to believe. I'm going to get knocked down and I'm going to stand up again. And, you know, if each of us kind of took our own corner of the world, whether it's like Tennessee or, you know, wherever it is, you know, your, your, your family or your school or, you know, whatever it is, and you kind of like had that vision and, and belief for that place and joined, you know, other people with other people and believing, you know, we can, we're the people who, we're the ones we've been waiting for. Like, seriously, my last piece that I, I have to, is that in the middle of Ebola, in the middle of the craziness, like death everywhere all around us and the sirens going off constantly and, and, and a lot of fear happening and, and the fear and chaos in the middle of all of that, I'll never forget you know every morning we would come together and you know librarians we would you know people would pray and like that's a very, you know and before we would go out to these communities in the middle of these like really harsh places and sing songs and i love singing and it's it's just fun to be a part of that um and it's an inspiring thing so in the middle of that one of the songs that came forward like that we were just like making up songs is um you know we it came forward that that there are no we are the heroes like that, that, that the American government isn't coming to save Liberia, and that the military wasn't coming on time, and the NGOs were in meetings, or they had left the country, many of them, not all, obviously, and and that government officials were not going to be the saviors. Like, of course, they were helpful, but the people who were going to save Liberia and save these communities were the people living in them. And like, here we are, like, waiting for people to save the day when we ourselves are supposed to be those saviors, you know? Like, we're the ones to come, we're the heroes. So the song was, I am the hero, you are the hero, we are the heroes. I am the hero, you are the hero, we are the heroes. And then behind it would be like, nobody's coming to save us. (laughs) Like, we're, like, echoing all this, like, really profound, like, You know, like, the government has abandoned us, you know. (laughs) It's, like, we must take responsibility for our families. And it was, like, all these, like, super gospel-y, like, songs, and it was so powerful. And, like, if that's, like, any message that I can get through here, like, through this thing is, like, you know, moving from, you know, to optimism is, like, one is, like, you are the hero. Like, there isn't somebody better. Like, and, in you know, like, you're the you're the one you've been waiting for. That thing you want to see changed, its like left in your hands. Um, that's the main thing that I hope, uh, you know, that comes through. And the second thing is like, as a, you know, as a token of like believing in the impossible and that we can achieve the impossible together. Nelson Mandela always says, "It always seems impossible until it's done." Um, mm-hmm. And I say, "Let's go do it." And 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 as a token to to achieving your impossible, I hope you stand with my impossible um, and believe in what we're up to.
0: Oh my gosh, Katie is so amazing. That was so good. She's so inspiring, so brave, so artistic. Everything about her is fantastic. I loved what she was saying at the very end of that conversation about how we are the ones we've been waiting for. That's true for Liberians during the Ebola outbreak, but it's also true for each of us. And I think that that's the ethos of the good newspaper that's the ethos of sounds good that's the ethos of a lot of the things that this community believes in because we have the opportunity to make a difference in the world around us in all kinds of ways using our unique giftings we are the ones we've been waiting for we can't wait on somebody else to do it we can't wait on somebody else to create the change we want to see in the world and we do get to celebrate the people who are making the changes in the world But we get to join with them. We get to kind of follow in their wake, follow in their dust and figure out ways to be a part of it. If it inspires us, we should be a part of it, whether it's in big ways or small ways. I wanted to make sure you caught this. Katie said that they're starting 500 schools. Like 500 is so many, it's ridiculous, but they're so powerful. They're so important because they're not stopping until every single child receives their basic human right of safety health and quality education those three things that they're getting through these schools prevent exploitation future disease outbreaks like ebola and they can even prevent war which is incredible and so right after this conversation i went and i decided to donate monthly to more than me um if you want to if you love what katie's doing as much as i do Go check it out, morethanme.org. You can donate as little or as much as you want to be a part of this. She had recommended 30 bucks a month. That's what I gave. Go check it out, though. She has an amazing video on the front page that you want to see regardless. So morethanme.org. You can find Katie Myler on Instagram, everywhere else. She's incredible. Check out her photography. Scroll back through her Instagram. It's worth it just to experience the things that she talked about in this conversation. Oh, and go check out the time that she was in. She was a time person of the year. We didn't even talk about that. It's just so cool. It stands on its own. Goodness gracious. So cool. Once again, don't forget to go check out the Good Newspaper. It's on Kickstarter for another three weeks. Go subscribe right away. It's goodnewspaper.co. Super easy. You can also find me everywhere online at, at Brandon Harvey. Just Google it, type it out, whatever works for you. And on that note, that is a wrap for today's episode. Go out and do some good this week, and we'll be back next Monday with another inspiring conversation with an incredible person. Sound good?